and uh, hope you surviving the winter as well as you can. And uh, we finally got some, I think, finally, and so uh, it's okay. I enjoyed. We're not uh, sledding with all of our guys in our church. Uh, just next door here at Reed's home, and uh, uh, went down the hill eight or nine times. The hard part was getting back up, but. Uh, the Lord provided there too. <laughs> I was a little sore last night, kind of sat around like, whoa, I didn't really. But uh, of course, the worst part was when I stepped out of my truck onto their driveway, <laughs> went right, right down on the ground. Had a real fast sit down, but uh, sort of like my back's all in line, so I think I'm all right. But uh, the Lord provided there too. But I right, take your Bible to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 4. You know, in the vast times that I've been here, we're going through the lives of Elisha and Elijah. And uh, there's three little miracles that take place. They're kind of small. And if you are reading through Second Kings in a hurry, you might miss them. Uh, but we're going to go through these, what I call, three miracles of supply. Now, you have your notes. I hope you have a copy of those. Uh, I made a mistake. Um, front and back are exactly the same. So don't. <clears throat> I'll be doing part of the message uh, the first point really during the morning, uh, this first this service, and they'll be going through the second two in the next service. So don't think you have to do it twice. I'm not preaching the same thing twice. Okay, uh, you know that. Have you ever experienced a, a miracle of God's provision in your life? You probably can all tell a story about that. I remember as a, a young child, my dad was a pastor of a church in Ohio, uh, Mansfield, Ohio, and uh, I remember I found my dad's first ever paycheck he received. It was for $25 for the week. I don't know whether he made any more than that in Ohio. That church was in Georgia. But that, you know, pastors weren't paid well then. And my dad was out driving our little car, and he was out doing some visiting, and he ended up skidding, and he ran into a telephone pole. Uh, and there was a $100 repair on the car that had to be performed. Now, $100 repair back in 1960 was a $2,000 repair today uh, in that respect uh, as far as inflation goes. And my mom and dad had no idea how they were going to provide for that car to get it repaired again so they could be able to drive it. That very same day, a funny letter came in the mail. It was from a law office in Georgia from some lawyer, what in the world is this? You know, fancy envelope, we don't, we don't get fancy envelopes at our house. And um, I remember my dad opening it up and, and almost seeing my dad drop to his knees in the ground. Uh, the story was a lady in Georgia where my father had his first church, Eatonton, Georgia, the home of Uncle Remus, you know who he is. And uh, uh, a little church there, Union Baptist Church, and um, my older sister and myself and my younger sister were all born in that little town, uh, Eatonton, Georgia. And uh, it was at the, the hospital was about half the size of this auditorium. Uh, it's, it's, it's now a, well, it was I mean, a couple of years ago, it was a school board meeting room now. It's not a hospital anymore. Uh, it was kind of like a, like a one-room hospital, and my mom had all three of us there. And the same nurse um, took part in the birth of all three of us. Well, little did uh, um, my mother or dad know that my parents made a profound impact on their lives. I'm not sure how. But in that envelope that my father received, I guess it's been you know, eight or nine years since they had left Georgia, 
was a check for $100 from the lawyer of this lady who had passed away, and she left $100 for my parents because she had helped my mom deliver the three of us. So I took credit for that. And because of me, I'm sure that they, they took $100. And my dad was able to take that check and repair the car and continue on. And that was, that's just a small miracle that God does. But we see in these uh, three miracles of supply, uh, we see miracles that God provided for these people in the Old Testament. But again, their purpose for these stories is not just, well, that's really nice to have them back there but to help us to remind us that God does perform miracles for us, even in small-scale things for us. So take your Bible to 2 Kings chapter 4. I mean, you're going to look at verse 38. 2 Kings 4, verse 38. And Elisha came to Gilgal, and there was a dearth in the land, and the sons of the prophets were sitting before him. And he said unto his servant, Set on the great pot, and seethe pottage for the sons of the prophets. Make some stew. And one, nice fellow and has initiative, went out to the field to gather herbs, and he found a wild vine, and not being a botanist, he gathered thereof wild gourds, his lap full, and he came and he shred them into the pot of pottage, for they knew them not, or didn't know what he was putting in there. Verse 40, so they poured out for the men to eat, and it came to pass as they were eating of the pottage, that they cried out and said, Oh, thou man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat thereof. But he said, Then bring meal or flour. And he cast it into the pot. And he said, Pour out for the people that they may eat. Would you have been the first one to taste that pottage? But there was no harm in the pot. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the time you've given us today to look into your word. I pray as we look at these uh, very special, small miracles of your providence and your tender care for your people uh, that we'll see, uh, again, the, the great promise in Scripture of how you promise to supply all of our needs in Christ Jesus. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Again, in these passages, we're going to find that uh, these were, this, this, the, this miracle is probably the eighth miracle that Elisha performed. Or we'll look at in the next service, the, the ninth and the eleventh. Uh, but these were miracles performed for the sons of the prophets. Now, the sons of the prophets were most likely schools of prophets. Uh, Samuel established them during his, uh, before the reign of David. Uh, they were up and down uh, until finally Elijah and Elisha, during their time frames, rebuilt these schools, and, and they seemed to be growing under the leadership of Elisha. Uh, there was a school in Gilgal, uh, one in Bethel, and one in Jericho, uh, and these were places where Elisha would spend his time training these prophets. But some of these prophets were also some that may have been rescued from the hand of Ahab. Um, we know from the story of the Old Testament that uh, Obadiah, a servant of Ahab, had taken a hundred of these prophets and put them in caves and, and had saved their lives during the reign of Jezebel, who would try was killing the prophets. And it's possible that some of these a hundred men who had been you know, put away in caves and protected their lives, their lives were spared by Obadiah, had certainly were encouraged in God and encouraged other prophets and other sons and maybe their other relatives to, to join in with this great work of proclaiming God's word to a nation in Israel, the northern kingdom particularly, that was very idolatrous. 
But as they were preparing to learn their lessons, they learned one very important thing, that serving God is not always easy. Just because you choose to serve God doesn't mean your life will be easy. Again, a part of their education would be the trials they would have to go through as they faced them to serve God, especially in an increasingly idolatrous nation. The question is, are we prepared to learn that lesson too? How did these prophets receive these most important lessons of their training? What did they learn that we need to be reminded of? And how does God supply our needs in this life? So let's look, first of all, at the purifying of the deadly stew. Number one in your notes, the purifying of the deadly stew. It's interesting, one, one uh, uh, commentator entitled this passage, The Peril of Church Suppers. <laughs> Now, I know we're going to have some food down there, so don't scare to scare you. Uh, but by faith, we, sometimes we eat what other people prepare. But this was an important lesson for them to learn. Well, see, first of all, though, again, the initiative of Elisha. Look at verse 38. And Elisha came again to Gilgal, and there was dearth in the land. Now, Elisha was being prepared satisfied very well. He know that if you go back to the very beginning of this chapter, chapter 4, uh, the lady of Shunem had actually built a upper room for Elisha to come. And every time he wanted to come and he wanted provisions, that she would have this room for him. And she would you know, provide food and lodging for him. And if, in, in this time of famine that was happening now in the land, he certainly could have just stayed with the lady of Shunem and been happy and not had a worry in his life. But he was not that kind of man. He understood that his students there, particularly in Gilgal, had a need. They were also experiencing this famine, and he went to them. Again, Elisha is somewhat like Jesus. He's a good shepherd who does not abandon his fold when trouble comes. He stays with the sheep, and he encourages and instructs them. We can turn to John chapter 10, verse 11, and it says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for his sheep. This is a good picture of what Elisha was portraying. Because verse 12 tells us that he, he that is an hireling and is not the shepherd, whose own sheep are not, seeing the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep and fleeth. And the wolf catches them and scatters the sheep. The hireling fleeth because he is an hireling and careth not for the sheep. Again, Elisha could have taken care of himself just fine there in Shunem. Could have left his mendic, fend for themselves. But he didn't, because he's like Christ, who said, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I have known of mine. Elisha was a good shepherd for his men. And he wasn't idle. He didn't wait around for someone to come to him and complain. He had his, his, his hand on the pulse of what was happening there. And in his own initiative, he, he goes to them. He goes to Gilgal to pro help provide for them, to teach them. You know, we too must have that same kind of initiative for others. You know, when we see a need, it shouldn't be something that happens and we find out and we have to be begged to give. Here was Elisha seeing a potential problem and going to solve it before it became a worse problem. You know, whether it's we see the initiative and seek the initiative of those who are unsaved and we are careful that we see what they're where they're headed and we want to stop that and so we go to them and we witness to them we tell the gospel we we do what we can to spread the good news of christ even before they come and ask us how many people have ever had someone come to you and said i want to get saved can you show me how <laughs> doesn't happen 
God wants us to go to them. And the same with our brothers in Christ. We see a need in our own family of brothers in Christ. We go to meet it. What does 1 John 3 say? Verse 16 says, Hereby we perceive the love of God because he laid down his life for us. He did that before we understood we had a need. Before we were born, he came to us. That's his love. Uh, verse 17 says, For whoso hath this world's good, talking about us, and seeth his brother have need, and he shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? And this is a, a test of our faith in Christ, is if we, we understand there's a need and we just close our eyes to it, or we blind ourselves to it, or we think it's already be taken care of. We think, well, somebody else will take care of it. Maybe God is speaking to us to take care of it. Are we going to be like Christ? Where it says, my little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Again, when we see a need, do we work to meet that need before we were asked? That's what Elisha did. So look at verse 38. And again, the last part of it says, the sons of the prophets were sitting before him. They were being taught. And he said to his servants, and set on a great pot and seething pottage for the sons of the prophets. Again, just as Jesus recognized the physical needs of the people that whom he was teaching. When he saw that they had a need of hunger, he provided for them. Elisha, in this lesson, he also sees a need, and he gave instructions on how to fix it. The good news is that in verse 38, if we compare it to verse 40, these prophets were not the ones that were complaining about being hungry. It was... Elisha, who saw the need and experienced it before they even asked. And it was a man of God who identified the physical need. He realized the importance of feeding the body as well as the soul. Of course, you might ask the question in their application to their own lives. Why did these men have to experience a famine? Weren't they serving the Lord? Weren't they already sacrificing for God, maybe leaving, leaving their families and coming to, and living in a, in a, in a school and, 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 and sacrificing to learn to serve God? Why a famine? Why did God do this to them? Why does God bring trials to our own lives? Well, the famine, of course, most likely was brought upon Israel, the northern kingdom, because of their sin of idolatry. We know other famines have taken place. Because of their sin. This may have been the same kind of famine. But it's important to know that even when God judges the unrighteous, sometimes it falls on the righteous too. You know, we have to live under the same government in America. And it may not be Christian. I was talking to a gentleman on Tuesday night. I count votes in Rumney. If you vote in Rumney, if you mark your ballot just right, I can pound it twice. No, just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, I always do it right. Uh, but I enjoyed talking to some of the men in the city that I don't, I don't get to see very often. One was a, a former school board member, and then another guy came up who is the current school board member. And I had talked to some of the members of our church and they had, uh, who goes to a public school in Plymouth, and, and they realized, uh, coming from Honduras, that, you know, coming to America, they weren't teaching English. I mean, but history. They're not teaching history in public schools. And I, I kind of wonder, why aren't they teaching history in a public school? 
Uh, and so the, here's a school board president right there beside me. I said, you know, is it true that you don't teach history in public schools anymore? He goes, no, we don't. And, of course, the older school board member chimed in and said, yes, because we don't want them to be educated so they become socialists, <laughs> which is kind of true. <laughs> if they don't know the history, then they can be tricked by these politicians who say we can just give away all this free stuff and it, our country will be great. Our country has been horrible to minorities and all this stuff and ignoring the history of our country. Again, why, you know, why are we subjected as believers in Christ to the same government that, that, that's ruining things for everybody else, in a sense? And I can imagine uh, being in China, you know, the, you, uh, the stories, probably the people in China that you talk to, what they would talk about their government and the, the socialists and the communist things that are happening and the, the lack of freedoms around our world. Why, why is it that there are Christians in China who have to experience the same trials it's not fair. We as believers can, can put on our little sad hats and say, well, why is it happening to us? And why don't we just create a little, little Christian commune somewhere where we can just take care of ourselves? Well, the Amish tried this, not very successful. Well, the good news, though, is that even in the midst of God's judgment on our country and, our, and those around us, that even the believers in Christ can have a special privilege that the wicked don't have any understanding of. Here were these sons of the prophets who were experiencing the same famine, but yet they were soon to experience the miracle of God's supply that no one else in Israel would have any knowledge of. And God does the same for us. Even though we may live in a, in a corrupt society, in a corrupt government, and we, we sometimes have to experience some of the same judgments of God upon, upon our world, Yet, God still cares for us and prepares for us. And these trials that come to us are good. (laughs) Say that again. (laughs) The trials that come to us are good because they come from our loving Heavenly Father. And these men needed to understand that even during this time of famine, God could be good to them. And Elisha wanted to teach that to them. Even in a time of famine, in a time of, of horrible kings and the hatred for God and the worship of Baal, as they remained faithful to God as a small remnant, God would care for them. And one of the prophets must have been listening well to Elisha. He takes the same kind of initiative that Elisha took. We see number two in your notes, letter B. We see the good intentions of the prophet, the good intentions of the prophet. Look at verse 39. And one went out into the field to gather herbs, and he found a wild vine. Again, that wasn't uh, something somebody planted. And he gathered thereof wild gourds, his lap full. And he came and he shred them into the pot, pot of pottage, for they knew them not, or they, they didn't, he didn't know what kind of plant it was. He had no idea that it was poisonous. Again, this was a time of dearth or a time of famine. Um, but he went out into the field. He, on the initiative, Elisha said, go and fix a pot of pottage. Get it, have a nice vegetable stew. And so he goes out into the field. He finds some herbs. He's looking for some spices. You know, don't you like, aren't you glad God gave us spices? Uh, imagine our food without spices. Uh, it's like eating oatmeal. It's cold. 
without any sugar. <laughs> it's, not many people want to do that. It's just, it's 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 if you want to really test your patience and test your your fortitude, you know, for not you know indulging yourself, just have pot, you know, have you know have oatmeal without sugar. It's, now I like my oatmeal with with brown sugar and raisins and bananas and cinnamon and then just you know all those all those spices just work together and they're, they're not, it's not good for you anymore, but uh, it still tastes good. Uh, we glad we have salt. Aren't you glad we have salt? What would our food be without salt? Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a salty person. I like to throw a lot of salt on my food. My wife's always going, why do you eat too much salt? You know, but <clears throat> I'm sorry, I'm eating my food <laughs> salt on it. Uh, and my drug test, my blood test came out all pretty good, so I'm not, uh, it's okay for me to have some salt. Uh, we, we love all different kinds of spices. You know, I have, I have, I have true drawers you know, in our kitchen. They're just full of different kinds of spices. Uh, we use them on our food because they are helpful. And this man went out looking for spices. Uh, but he ran across some vegetables. So, hey, this is great. We're having a vegetable stew. Here's some gourds here. They look like squash. And I know my friends like squash. I'm going to get a whole lap full. He takes up his cloak and he, he starts filling his lap, you know, his, his cloak with, with all of these gourds. And he said, man, these guys are going to love me. I'm going to have all this great squash to have supper tonight. And everybody's going to think, well, pat me on the back and say, what a great prophet you are. But he wasn't a botanist. He was a prophet. This was a wild vine. It wasn't cultivated. It looked like more of the nutritious ones. Uh, scientists tell us that was a, there was a particular plant during this time that grew. It had leaves like a squash, but it was bitter and poisonous. It was a severe laxative, and eating large amounts would just tear your intestines apart. Now, today we have lots of, you know, lots of medicines that would take care of that kind of problem, but back then they didn't. And so that kind of thing could, could be deadly, potentially. It would cause death. Again, the uh, application, a little small application aside here, is that in a time when there was a famine, there was a bountiful supply of wild gourds. You know, in our spiritual life today, in, in our country, there is a famine of this true word of God. There is a famine of truth. But even though there's a famine of truth, Satan has plenty of wild gourds out there. There's plenty of false doctrine to run around. There's never a dearth of false food. And here's a man who had good intentions. Again, he wasn't a botanist. His good intentions, though, poisoned the pot. Um, now, some may say, well, you know, God just looks on the heart. Uh, it's, it's okay if you have good intentions. It's, that's what's most, you know, intentions are more important than actions. Well, there's a little bit of truth in that. But the fact of the matter is actions matter. Real actions matter. Uh, if we intend to do right as believers in Christ, then we should study and find out what God says about what is right. Not just think our intentions are good enough. We know that our intentions, if we just intend to serve God and intend to love God, we intend to go to heaven. Without the actions of truly trusting Christ, our personal Savior, your intentions will get you nowhere. And if I say, well, I, I want to please God. I want to do, I want to I I have God bless my life and I want God to bless me. Then I better look into what the word of God says about how do I live so that God can bless me. Not just by my good intentions. See, good intentions can cause a problem. 
I remember one time as a, as a budding youth pastor, uh, the, uh, back in the 1970s when big balls were first invented. I remember having my first big ball game ever. Uh, and I got this big five-foot ball, and I had all that had about 20 or 30 teams. We played, a, and the old-fashioned the old fashioned way to play a big ball was to you put one team on one end of the field, the team on the other end of the field, and you have the ball in the middle, and you say go, and they just run to the middle, and the first guy that hits it, of course, hits the ball really hard, and here's a guy running toward it, and he's, he gets, gets plastered by it. So, well, there's got to be a better way. And I, had, I had really good, good intentions to make this game a little more exciting and a little more safe. And so just as they got to the middle, I decided to throw the ball in the air so they wouldn't hit it. That was good intention, except for the first two guys came to the middle. And (laughs) as they were looking up at the ball, they didn't see each other. And there was a terrible collision of these two guys, heads thunking. And I'm glad they survived. They probably went away a little disfigured. But it was just it was good intention. You know, there's good intention. Pastor Ingram, I, well, I want to make more fun, but I, my good intentions caused a mistake. Well, what a relief it is. And it was a relief for me then. That sometimes our in good intentions don't cause death <laughs> to other people. But our good intentions, sometimes God can see our good intentions uh, and can buffer them so we don't do damage to others. As one writer said, Christ sometimes cushions our folly, redeems our errors, he neutralizes our stupidity. Uh, he does do that for us. And so this man, even though he had good intentions, he brought poison into the pot, and that could have been disastrous for his friends there in his school, the prophets. And it would have been disastrous for him, having, having the guilt of knowing what he caused to his friends, his fellow prophets. And so we see God's goodness. Number three, we see the inedibleness of the stew, the inedibleness of the stew. Look at verse 40. So he poured out for the men to eat, and it came to pass as they were eating, and there some of them took the first taste. They cried out and said, O thou man of God, there's death in the pot. And they could not eat thereof. Again, do you realize how many varied forms, different, varied ways there are to die <laughs> in this world? Do you know how many different kinds of herbs and berries that are out there in the woods that if you eat the wrong one, it will cause death to you? Um, how many different animals are out there that... that you know, they're, they're little, little bitty frogs, and they have little funny, really funny colors. But you eat one of those little frogs, you will be dead in a matter of minutes. Again, some of those innocent-looking herbs and berries can produce the most horrible kinds of death. Yet, for the most part, God is merciful, provided a way for us to be safe from those. He's given animals instincts, which one's not to eat. He's given us intelligence. We, you know, we, we have to learn which mushrooms out there in the field we, we can eat and which mushrooms we, we don't eat because we, we've learned a lesson. Our intelligence tells us which ones are, are safe for us. And just as sometimes God mercifully endows us with, with animals with instincts and us with intelligence, he has also given us spiritual senses. To ex- and if exercises will help us discern both good and evil, according to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14. So we need to be careful, especially when it comes to truth. Do we test what God tells us? 
We 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 test what other people tell us, and we test it based on what God tells us. Uh, are we are we checking to be sure that what someone else is teaching is is what God is teaching us? His word is most important. <clears throat> and of course, what's you can't miss his application here. Is that who are these men who are discerning this poison in the pot? Well, these are men who have just been sitting around the feet of Elisha and learning from Elisha. So as Elisha is teaching them, these men have the ability to understand there's a problem. And spiritually, you know, who are the people in this world who are going to be able to decide for themselves whether or not a certain political you know, solution or a, a certain financial solution to our lives is something that we should take part in? Well, God has given us, again, teachers, churches, brothers in Christ, that we can bat these ideas off of and, and, and turn to the word of God together to learn. It's those people who, who spend their time in God's word who again have the ability to discern their truth and error, just as these men who are sitting before Elisha. So what are these men going to do? Somebody yells, there's death in the pot. Everybody's spitting out their food on the ground. Now what do you do? Throw all this food away? This is a pretty large pot. It could have been up to 100 men being fed here and maybe some of their families. And unlike today when you can run down to the grocery store or run out to McDonald's or whatever and find something to eat really quickly, you know, food preparation back then was a day-long process. You know, when usually when you finish one meal, you start preparing the next one. And when you finish that meal, you start preparing the next one because <clears throat> you had to go out and get grain and make bread and ground flour. And there was a, a, a <clears throat> constant process of getting food preparation. And they had probably spent most of a, a number of hours you know, going out into the woods, you know, finding these gourds and finding other vegetables and, and putting them in the pot and, and cooking them. And, and then now, at the end of the day, there is hunger and no one is satisfied. Satisfied. We throw this food away, the next meal won't be for a long time. And here are a lot of hungry servants of God. What does Elisha do? How does he respond? Well, we see he doesn't panic. These men were panicking. There's, there's death in the pot. But Elisha and God have a solution. He doesn't want them to panic. Look at letter D in your notes. He, they're added ingredient to the stew. So, Elisha's cool head here prevailed. Look at verse 41. And he said, then bring meal. Kind of see the, he's not panicking. Then then bring me some meal. (laughs) Bring me some flour. So they did. And he cast it into the pot. And he said, pour out for the people that they may eat. And who's the first one to eat this? (laughs) Who tries it for you? Have you ever seen that commercial a long time ago on Life Cereal? But let Mikey try it. You know, <laughs> let Mikey try it first. Here, Mikey, you try it first. I can imagine the prophets here. You brought these. <laughs> the guy that brought the you know the, the, the poison ones. You brought them. You eat them. <laughs> and they're watching him. Is he going to drop over dead? Uh, run to the bathroom? Whatever. Is something going to happen here? And so he, I can imagine. Okay, I brought this stuff here. I'm going to be the first one to eat it. And he does. And the Bible says there was no harm. There was no harm in the pot. A miracle had taken place. These prophets were hungry. 
stew was polluted. And usually if you throw a handful of flour, what does it do? It just makes a thicker mess. <laughs> what is, you know, there's no miracle flour here. This is not, you know, Pillsbury or whatever you might call it. Just some meal, some ground meal and flour thrown into the pot. But here God takes what is poisonous and he makes it into a life-giving provision. And Elisha is demonstrating the power of God for his people, his men he's teaching. Of course, why use flour? Couldn't God have just presto changeo pointed at it and just, you know, poof, it would have turned into something. Why use flour? Why throw something in there? Well, I think God uses sometimes these things, these items, these little object lessons, you might say, to teach us. It's easier to remember a story or a provision of God if there's maybe something used and make an object lesson. And of course, God uses all the things he uses in Old Testament as pictures and stories to help us even understand the New Testament. Again, these prophets remember I can imagine years down the way, they would look at their friend who had brought the poison pot and said, hey, remember guy, when, when, when you brought the poison into our stew? Yeah, I remember that. I said, remember how he put flour in the pot and it say it was healed? He said, yeah, I remember that. And they remembered it because there was that object lesson. There was that flour you threw in the pot. And there's also a prophetic sign here. Again, here was a miracle that re- removed harm from the pot. In the same way, we see a picture of how when when our lives were full of sin, Jesus Christ came and he he healed our sin in our lives and made us pure and healthy and good for others. All of mankind is poisoned by sin. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. But we cast in this flower a picture of Christ. He is the antidote to all sin and death. In the, this meal or this flower is, could be regarded as the word of God in the New Testament. Whether it's written word of God that is, pres, preserves our life and gives us life. Or the, the person of the word of God, Jesus Christ himself. You know, we see he is a great type of, of this meal offering. We see into the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 2. Because he is only by the word of God that we are safeguarded from evil. And only by making the word of God our constant guide are we delivered from what the sin that surrounds us. Of course, it's also instructive to realize that this was a sign of Elisha's unswerving faith in the midst of panic. The men were crying out, there's death in the pot. But Elisha calmly responded by adding the flour. And he understood even during the times of his trial of life, in the middle of panic, He could cling to the promises and the power of God. We too, as we see the world panicking around us, and we see others panic around us, we can come with the promises of God, understand the power of God, and can be that stabilizing influence in someone else's life. You see, we learn from this event of the great assurance of God's faithfulness to us. Even in little things. These prophets need to learn a lesson, maybe the same lesson that General Stonewall Jackson learned in his life. And one day, long before he was ever called Stonewall Jackson in the Civil War, his world caved in. His infant son that day had been born dead. 
and his dear wife, due to the birth of a child, ended up hemorrhaging and dying that evening. His heart was broken, his son and his wife both gone in one day. But he had a faith in God, a faith in Christ. And he wrote to his, little, his sister, the sad news. He wrote this, My dearest Ellie breathed her last on Sunday evening, the same day in which the child was born dead. But oh, the consolations of religion or his trust in Christ. I can willingly submit to anything if God strengthens me. And then he went on to witness to his own sister. He says, oh, my sister, would that you could have him for your God. Though all nature to me is eclipsed, yet I have joy in knowing that God withholds no good thing from them that love and keep his commandments. But what a great testimony to the faithfulness of God. Have you learned that lesson of God's supply in times of panic even? He is a God we can trust. And he also is a God, because we can trust him, we can proclaim him, as David did in Psalm 105, verse 1 and 2. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, sing unto him, sing praise or psalms unto him, talk ye to others of all his wondrous works. I can imagine these prophets could go home and say, hey, hey, honey, hey, kids, look what God did for us today. This same God you can serve, and we can proclaim together. Is that your goal? See the God's provision, and then proclaim him to others who need that same provision for their lives too. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who provided safety from the poison of this world, and the poison of sin. we thank thankful that we can be washed, in a sense, white as snow by the blood of Christ. We also are thankful that you provide, because you are not just a one-time Savior, you are a constant Savior who constantly provides for us, your children. We are thankful that you do provide in every way of our lives and that you can allow us, because of your goodness to us, to proclaim your goodness to others. Lord, help us not to miss opportunities this week to take the good things you've done for us and share them with others so that they can see how good a God you are and desire him too. And we'll pray these things in your name. Amen.